Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens, and joining me today to discuss the early actions of the Biden administration is IER's Director of Policy, Kenny Stein. Kenny, good to see you again. Yep, great to be here. Uh, so you wrote a blog breaking down the day one executive orders from the Biden administration that I want to go through with you today. Uh, you separated the actions into near-term and long-term effects. And I guess we'll start with the uh, the near-term effects. The two that jump out uh, there are the, the revocation of the Keystone XL permit to cross the U.S.-Canada border and the decision to jo- uh, to rejoin the Paris Agreement. So, Sure. Yeah. Obviously, Keystone and the Paris Agreement were the two big things that got all the press um, just briefly, the Keystone Pipeline in of itself, uh, you know, is is not, you know, it's not the project that the entire U.S. oil industry is based on. So its its immediate impacts are not huge nationwide, but there are some very specific uh, harms. There's several thousand people that are already being laid off. Uh, these are mostly construction jobs because the project is, you know, has been under construction for several years now. So there's a lot of people that are losing their jobs because of this. Um, going forward, it's it's not going to do what the Biden administration thinks once it's once it's do what the what environmentalists are hoping it's going to do the the whole point their whole movement behind the Keystone XL getting rid of Keystone XL is to try and keep the Canadian oil Canadian tar sands oil from being produced and they think that by not having that this one pipeline it won't be produced but that's not the case Canada is going to continue to produce their oil it's going to continue to be exported it's going to continue to come to the United States it's just going to come on rail cars now instead of through a pipeline. So it's actually going to be less safe. It's going to be more environmentally harmful. And ironically, since they claim that the whole reason to cancel the Keystone permit was for climate change emissions purposes, trains, of course, uh, emit more, uh, have more climate change, greenhouse gas emissions than uh, using a pipeline. So it's, you know, it's actually, it's complete contradicts their justification for it. Um, So, but going forward, the the one thing that this could have uh, uh, an impact uh, domestically on the U.S. is, it makes uh, Canadian crude or the Canadian crude a little bit more expensive to use in the United States, especially in the Gulf Coast, because it's got a you know rail is more expensive than pipeline. Uh, the problem is is that if uh, that's not doesn't mean that those Gulf those refineries in Texas and Louisiana don't need the oil that they're not going to use oil. It just means it's got to come from somewhere else, which means importing it uh, most likely. A lot of the, a lot of heavy crude also comes from Mexico, but. Venezuela is also a huge producer of heavy crude. So it really means that we're going to have to import that oil from somewhere else rather than, you know, our friendly neighbor, Canada. Yeah. So then shifting to the Paris Agreement, if you could just give our listeners a quick, like, 30-second overview of what the Paris Agreement is, and then what are the implications of rejoining? Yeah. So the Paris Agreement is, is, it purports to be a global climate change agreement that's going to, you know, try to keep temperature growth, temperature increases two degrees or 1.5 degrees or whatever, whatever arbitrary number they pick uh, to keep it down. And they pretend to do that through government action. Now, the current the current Paris uh, commitments that everybody has come nowhere close to even meeting that that goal, even under their own models. Um, So the United States rejoining this agreement that's not going to do anything uh, isn't, you know, in actual practice isn't going to have much effect. Um, however, 
And the other the other thing about the Paris Agreement is that it was specifically designed by the Obama administration in negotiations to be quote unquote non-binding, which allows the president to join or in President Trump's case, unjoin uh, unilaterally without Congress being involved. Normally in the United States uh, for a treaty, which the Paris Agreement really is a treaty, uh, it needs to be ratified by the Senate in order to go into effect in the United States and have the force of domestic law. So the Paris Agreement was specifically designed to circumvent the constitutional order. And President Biden is now rejoining. Um, so the fact that it's non-binding means that it's not, there's probably not gonna be that much true impact, uh, certainly not today. However, the problem with this agreement hanging out there, hanging out over the economy, is that there are plenty of district court judges uh, that have a more liberal environmentalist bent, and they're just itching for the opportunity to use the Paris Agreement as some sort of legal justification to, um, to stop uh, some sort of development in the United States or to impose new regulations uh, through the courts that could never pass Congress, which is why the Paris Agreement would never be ratified by Congress. So that, that's the danger that's hanging out there, sort of a legal threat hanging over us. And that just, it's just an uncertainty thing, so. So looking now at uh, long-term regulatory actions, these are often described as executive orders, but uh, as you say in your blog posts, there are actually instructions to various agencies and departments to begin the process of reviewing and revising regulations and guidance. So can you explain the, long in, uh, the long-term impact here and then just pick out a few of these orders and explain the significance of them? Right. So the... Well, this is one of the things that people do with executive orders is they write a lot of grandiose language and say, government, go do this. And then they go and have a press conference and say, oh, look, we did this. The problem is, is that this is really just beginning the regulatory process. It's there's been several these instructions are basically telling various agencies and departments to go look at these various regulatory rules, begin the process of replacing them, which is a years long process because you not only have to write a new rule, you then there's then a uh, the Administrative Procedure Act. There's a very spelled out series of you have to give public notice for your new rule. You have to allow comment on that rule. You have to review those comments. You have to then you know, reduce, produce another rule. Like there's a whole long process that goes into it. So this is basically starting the, the starting gun for several years worth of regulatory action that they want to do. But what it does tell us is sort of their, their big priorities uh, for things that they want to go after. So one of the, the, the one, the big three that I pulled out um, were cafe standards, which is the fuel economy standards for cars, which the Trump administration um, issued new ones just uh, in the last year. Uh, now the Biden administration wants to review those and make them much harsher and effectively as they probably want to try another backdoor electric vehicle mandate, uh, which was what sort of what the Obama, the Obama administration tried to do uh, in 2016. Uh, you also have uh, a replacement for the Clean Power Plan. The Clean Power Plan under the Obama administration was enjoined by the Supreme Court and was never allowed to go into effect. The Trump administration did their own replacement for the Clean Power Plan called the Affordable Clean Energy Rule. That has also been uh, enjoined by the district DC circuit court. Um, so they're actually, they have a blank canvas to work on there. However, they still need to do a whole new rulemaking. And the problem is they're sort of, they're caught in sort of a, a limbo here because clearly the Obama clean power plan uh, is executive overreach, goes too far. The Supreme Court in 2016 uh, said that, and the Supreme Court has actually only grown more skeptical of government regulatory overreach since then. So it's highly unlikely that uh, the Obama Clean Power Plan or anything like it is going to pass muster at the Supreme Court. 
Uh, so the Biden administration has to decide where between the Trump rule and the Obama rule they're going to come down because clearly Obama's too far. They can't go further than Obama because, again, that obviously that's so. So where where exactly they pick on that scale to try and do a new uh, rule? Regardless, it's going to be it's going to be pretty harmful. It's going to have impacts on electricity generation. And the question is, is how harmful? And of course, this is again, this is this generate. This is a lot of uncertainty that goes into it. Um, and then the other, another big uh, executive order that they had is actually what they call modernizing regulatory review. And so this is the the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, has has guidance for all agencies on how they evaluate, uh, how they do cost benefit evaluations, how they look at regulatory thing, uh, rulemakings, and you know evaluate the the value for society and what the, you know the good and the bad. Um, the thing is, is that especially environmentalists for years, decades really, have said that these OMB rules uh, are, quote unquote, too favorable to industry. Now, what they mean by that is that the rules have a lot of, that take into account things like, you know, GDP effects and job effects, like, you know, the sort of concrete economic, economic harms. Yeah. Right, economic, <laughs> basic economics. The environmentalists uh, want them to take into account the more esoteric ideological ideas that they have. And that's what this, quote, modernizing regulatory review is instructing the OMB to go rewrite the rules. And that involves in injecting things like equity and environmental justice and, you know, intergenerational equity. Like the these very nebulous terms that are, they're ideological terms, but they're also eye of the beholder terms. Like two people on the left can have entirely different definitions of what these terms mean. Sure. And yet they want to inject these vague principles into the regulatory process, which again, as, as I said, throughout throughout all these regulatory things, it's this is injecting huge amounts of uncertainty into the economy because no one knows what these terms mean they're very, they're the type of terms that a, a regulator, uh, you know, in the future, the regulator decides they want to pass a regulation that, that for, because they like it or because their friend, you know, whatever, for whatever reason. And these terms are so mushy and vague that they can pick and choose from these things to make whatever regulation they want look good. Like there's no, there's no objective standard for, for equity. Like what, what is, what is the standard for equity? Everybody has their own standard. So that, that's why I, I, I sort of, I, my overall theme of the day one executive orders is just uncertainty. This is injecting a huge amount of uncertainty into the economy uh, to, you know, anybody who uses energy, things are becoming uncertain. Electricity, gas, uh, vehicles. So these are the type of things that there isn't a dollar amount today, but the ripple effects on the economy and the uncertainty that it creates and it impedes people, uh, change their investment decisions because they're not sure what's coming. And that's that's sort of a long-term rolling harm that builds on itself. Yeah, so like a concrete example there with the uh, the intergenerational uh, accounting would be like the the discount rate that's used. It, it, it seems like the language there, they're, they're trying to push like a measure like that to, sure. to zero, right? Sure, yeah. exactly. I mean, yeah. that's the thing is intergenerational equity like is a vague term, but we know what they mean by it. Right. Right. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what they, because they want, because here's the problem with all climate change things, all these concerns is that 50, 100 years in the future, uh, Americans are going to be much richer and we're going to be very, much more easily able to adapt to whatever climate changes happen. Regard, regardless of what the cause is, we will be richer and more able to adapt. So future costs 
are not don't look very expensive today, particularly if you use normal discount rates. Because you know, as we get richer, you know, the you talk about the the worst case scenario from the National Climate Assessment. Um, it was something like Americans in twenty one hundred are going to be like. I think 450% richer than today, but with the worst case scenario of climate change, they might be 435% richer than today. So, I mean, that's, that's tiny and it's completely meaningless to people today. But if you change the discount rate and you say that $1 in 2100 is $1 today, then suddenly those, those very minor costs in the future look really expensive today and justify massive government action. So, I mean, that's the game they're playing. Yeah. And outside of the formal regulatory uh, intentions, there's also a number of administrative actions then that you pointed out that do fall within the purview of the executive branch. Um, can you go through the ones that are most important there? Yeah. So the, the big one that is unfortunately is completely unilaterally in the executive branch has to do with national monuments. The president has is given carte blanche to designate federal lands as a quote unquote national monument that and then essentially put it off limits to whatever use or development that the president wants to. Uh, this is this is a flaw in the way the Antiquities Act is drafted, but it's doesn't leave much, you know, it completely writes Congress out of <laughs> federal land management. But what it means is that the the Biden administration wants to go back and review the national monument designations that the Trump administration adjusted. So the Biden administration did some national monument designations. The Trump administration adjusted those boundaries. The Biden administration is going to review those, by which we, of course, know they mean they're going to put the boundaries back to what Obama did. So unfortunately, that's that we that's kind of a foregone conclusion. We know that's coming. Uh, it's going to be very harmful to states like Utah, where all this land is going to be taken out of development. Um, and it's the kind of thing that begs for a congressional solution to the Antiquities Act. Um, another big one is the White House CEQ, the Council on Environmental Quality. Uh, towards the end of the Trump administration, they issued some new uh, regulations on how the National Environmental Policy Act uh, should be implemented, particularly in how you evaluate greenhouse gases. So NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA is supposed to be taken into consideration environmental impacts of any federal action, any federal spending. Um, and that's called a NEPA review. And so the Trump administration issued regulations on how greenhouse gas should be treated in NEPA reviews. The Biden administration doesn't like those regulations. They're going to redo them. So CEQ is a White House office. So that's they, it's their prerogative to do that. Uh, the Trump administration did do their regulation, their implementation regulations through the formal rulemaking process. So that means the Biden administration has to also do that. But it's kind of a foregone conclusion that they can write, rewrite it how, pretty much however they want. And that, you know, that's coming down the pipe. So those were day, day one actions. Yesterday was Climate Day at the White House. And uh, the big thing that came out of that was that the administration directed the Secretary of, Secretary of the Interior Department to halt new oil and gas uh, leases on public lands and waters and begin reviewing existing permits for fossil fuels. So uh, this was kind of the big story in the news yesterday. Do you want to talk about uh, the immediate implications of this? How long can they uh, they keep this moratorium going on for? And um, I've, I've seen people suggest that there's going to be legal challenges to this already. I think yeah. Kathleen Sagama and, uh, from uh, Western Energy Alliance uh, has already suggested that they're going to jump into that. Uh, right. What what might those legal challenges look like? So yeah, there's definitely there there are going to be some legal challenges. One of the problems uh, of this decision and 
also for these legal challenges is we don't know exactly what they're going to do. The language of the language of the executive order is very vague. It just says pause leasing while they review leasing, you know, policy for the federal government. Now, the executive branch does have a lot of uh, discretion and leeway about deciding what gets leased when when it gets leased, uh, what is offered for lease, that sort of thing. So the just a, a, a pause for right now is very much within the executive branch authority. The problem is, is how long they want it to keep going. There are limitations on that. The executive branch is supposed to offer leases uh, quarterly, required to. Now, they're not required to, how, how much they're required to offer is not in statute, but they are required to offer leases. There's also opportunities for um, a company who wants to develop uh, a piece of land to nominate uh, an area for development. And the federal government has to respond to that. They can't just say no. So that's where it becomes a bit of a gray area, and it's going to depend on how the Biden administration tries to go about this. And they may have hamstrung themselves by doing this blanket moratorium um, because this is arbitrary. There's, there's, no, there's no rationale for why everything needs to be stopped. Uh, so that's what I'm sure the legal challenge is probably going to challenge, challenge that initial that it's literally it's arbitrary and capricious because they, they offered no justification. Now, if, if this had been a year from now and the Biden administration announced that we have reviewed everything and we have decided that, you know, all these areas need to not be offered for oil and gas leasing. And here's our reasoning for that. All right. Well, that's that would be a little more defensible legally. But just this arbitrary blanket uh, moratorium is very questionable. And again, it depends on how long they do it. Now, if they if this is only, you know, for 30, 60 days and then they come out and say, oh, well, we're going to offer leases on this very small area, but everything else we're not going to offer leases right now. You know, that's a way that's a way to get out of this. But the they're they're definitely on questionable ground here. And but partly the vagueness of what they have suggested uh, may allow them to avoid some of the legal challenges for now. Um, long term, though, the, again, the problem here is like the other, like the day one executive orders, this injects a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what they're doing. And that uncertainty is harmful in of itself. It doesn't it, you know, forget, um, you know, even if the Biden, the Biden administration ultimately ends up having to offer a bunch more leases and there's production resumes again, there's economic harm from the, the pauses in leasing. There are companies that instead of waiting around to see what the federal government's going to do, they'll go buy a lease on private land or state land, or they'll go to Texas, you know, or, or a company that would have bought oil from Colorado will say, well, we're not sure. So we're going to buy it from Canada or we're going to import it from somewhere else. So that all has compounding effects that are harmful, even if ultimately this, this Biden, uh, moratorium is more on the t on the a bluff, uh, more of a gesture toward the environmentalists. Yeah. And there were a group of Democrats from Texas, I think, that came out and uh, were pushing back against this. So sure. does that, that kind of signals that he's going to face some or the administration is going to face some opposition even from within their own party right. already? Well, it was I it was about, I believe it was five Texas Democrats, uh, which it just so happens that Democrats have a five vote majority in the House of Representatives. So, you know, there's a uh, Interesting. That, yeah, that actually that makes clear how hard it would be for the Biden administration to pass any of this through Congress. That's why they're doing it all administratively. But then you also have the the impacts of this. Not just Democratic House members aren't concerned about it, but you've got Democratic governors. The state of New Mexico 
their education budget is based on oil and gas tax revenue, and that comes from production predominantly from production on federal land. So if you start choking off their tax money, states like Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, I mean that's that's these blowing up state budgets basically. And then that's even apart from the jobs that will be lost and the you know the, the investment in the state that's not happening because obviously the well might be drilled on federal land, but the closest town is where the the oil rig workers spend their money and you know the you know the there's there are ne- there are effects that go far beyond the limited area of federal land, and all these states all these states will feel this impact. And again, like I was talking about investment being redirected. That sort of uncertainty hits these states immediately, even if, again, ultimately they're forced to start offering leases again. Even that short interruption and that redirecting of investment, particularly with the oil price where it is now, um, these oil companies have choices about where to invest. They don't. There are there are plenty of options. There's lots of extra oil out there, and leases a lot of places are cheap. So why are you going to invest in on federal land in the United States? When you've got a federal government that's playing games with you, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna invest offshore in Guyana or in the Permian Basin in Texas, that kind of thing. So then the, the other thing that came out yesterday was this fact sheet that had uh, a whole list of sort of vaguely worded uh, either future executive orders or I don't know if it, it was stuff that he signed also yesterday, but um, some of it had to do with making sure national security that climate change was front and center with that. Uh, there was like a rebuilding infrastructure for a sustainable economy initiative, a whole bunch of things. Um, a lot of it sounded like stuff that has to be done through Congress. And is that the case? And then is there anything on that list that really jumps out to you that concerns you? Or how should we think about the fact sheet from yesterday? Yeah. It's Well, I, I think of it as kind of a bureaucracy bonanza. You've created a bunch of new councils and positions. There's a, there's a domestic climate advisor now, like trying to be like a national security advisor, but a climate advisor. There are task forces and they're asking task forces to write reports and give ideas and look at review things and give ideas. It's a lot of, it was a lot of paper pushing is what it really is. It's, it's basically, but the problem is, is that the, the actual actions from this executive order are very limited, but it's basically an invitation to the most busybody of bureaucrats to go find things that they can do in the name of climate. That's really what it is. And they are being told to report back on ideas for how we can mess with things. So that's sort of the danger. It sort of, it says what they, what they want to find an excuse to regulate. And so they're like, please go out and find an excuse for us to intervene anywhere we possibly can. So it's, it's concerning. And again, as I've said several times now, it injects a lot of uncertainty because now, like, what are they going to do with this? Like, what are these reports going to say? And they, they could be fairly dangerous. The one thing I'll say, in addition to the, the temporary moratorium, the other uh, part of the executive order that actually has sort of a concrete impact is that uh, there's instructions to go back and review um, how the royalties and um, how like excise taxes, the type of oil, gas, coal, mining, uh, all development on federal lands, they pay, you know, they're paying a per- money to the government, to the federal government in taxes and, and fees and that kind of thing. And the instructions, it, one of the instructions was to go back for bureaucrats to go back and review all those fees and taxes 
to see if they should be changed. And of course, what by changed, what they mean is increased, which the goal here obviously is to make everything, any sort of development on federal land, much more expensive. So that is something that because, because a lot of these fee schedules are, um, are very old, like decades and decades out of date, there, there is some justification for updating them. The problem is, is that it's being, these updates are going to be done by people who are aggressively hostile to the industries that are, that are under review. And they're going to use this as an opportunity for punitive measures, not, uh, not for like good governance measures. So, but that, that's a very real danger. And again, we talk about, I'll say again, the, for redirecting investment on federal land, if you're a company that works on federal land and on private, state and private land, you see this sort of thing coming, you are, it makes you not want to invest more on federal land because you're afraid of your costs are going to rise because by through bureaucratic fiat. So again, it's, it's, inje it's injecting uncertainty. It's, it's, and it's really, it's screwing with these states that have large uh, areas of federal land. Their economies often depend on development on federal land. Um, and the, this is the Biden administration announcing that we are going to do our best to destroy your economies. And we just had Paul Guessing from the Rio Grande Foundation on in New Mexico. Um, was He was on the episode that aired just before this one and went through New Mexico's uh, public lands and how much how much their, their budget is supported by the oil and gas industry. So um, I'd encourage listeners to go back and listen to that episode if they want more context there. Yeah, and it's, it's been an amazing windfall. Particularly for New Mexico is one of the poorest states in the country. And they've had they've had billion dollar surpluses the last few years that they get to spend on whatever they want. And that's all down to oil and gas development. And a large percentage of that is on federal land. So is there anything from these day one announcements that we haven't discussed that you think our listeners should know? No, I think I think we covered all the I mean, there's a lot of a lot of it is sound and fury signifying nothing. There's a lot of flowery language. Um, all these executive orders, practically every paragraph, they say after they say we're going to destroy some part of an industry, they say and and create good jobs. So the, there's a lot of hand waving that they're pretending that these executive orders are somehow going to create jobs, but the sum total of it is they are targeting certain industries for destruction, and they are injecting uncertainty, economic uncertainty throughout the entire economy, and you can't just you don't fix that by saying oh we're also going to create good jobs. That, that doesn't do anything for the to, to mitigate that uncertainty. And when you talk about where the economy is right now, we're talking about we're just coming out of the coronavirus crisis, where the economy like needs every booster behind it it can. These are like a huge wet blanket across the entire economy, making everyone afraid that their their fuel costs are going to go up, their electricity costs are going to go up, their some industry may vanish. Their you know it's. Possibly the worst timing for this you could possibly imagine. If we had, if we had a great booming economy, all right, maybe some of these things might be able to shake off. But it's just the worst possible timing. Of course, when we're talking about energy, we're talking about an input into everything that goes on Literally, in our economy. So it's everything. the worst sector yes, that you could possibly. There is nothing we do. Every product you consume is either made with uh, oil or natural gas, or actually is physically. Physically, oil and gas, you know, plastic or polymers. So it's it's everything we do, every part of the economy is affected by this. And that, that uncertainty spreads economy-wide. Great. My guest today has been Kenny Stein from IER. Kenny, thank you for your time today. 